0: Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 3 of The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. So a few housekeeping items before we get into the actual material for this week. Um, The Unit 1 discussion forums and writing assignments were due on Sunday, this past Sunday. So just remember that you have to do all the discussion forums. So if you haven't done that yet, then please go and do it because turning it in late is so much better than not turning it in at all. Um, and if you did not do the writing unit one writing assignment, you must do the unit two writing assignment. So you had to do, you have to do either the unit one or unit two, and then either unit three or unit four. So you're only doing two writing assignments throughout the bulk of the course until the final exam or not the exam, the final paper. It is not an exam. I want to be very clear. Um, so I've looked at some of the discussion forums so far, and they've looked really good. I mean, this was just taking a glance at them um, over the weekend. Um, you know, they were very thoughtful, and I could tell people had done the readings and they were really thinking about some of these issues. Um, and But that was just from from Friday. I haven't actually started the the grading process so the discussions in the writing assignment for unit 1 will be graded by next week. So give me about a week with assignments. there's 90 of you and only one of me and um, you know I should be able to get them back to you by then. And also I want to thank everyone who posted on the welcome to the discussion forum and offered some details about yourself. It's great to see people from all over the place uh, with different interests and, you know, different views on what they think of when they think about this class or how they're feeling or different people they would like to have a conversation with. Um, So that's been really great. Um, also, make sure you're stopping into my office hours if you have any questions. I actually encourage you to come in. Um, we can talk about the class, or if you need recommendations for other other classes to take in political science, things like that. You know, come in and talk to me. Um, they are my office hours are Tuesdays and Thursdays from two to four. And if you can't make it during that time period, then shoot me an email and we can set something up where. You know, we Skype or arrange some other way to meet if it if you're either not in Eugene or if you know you have a class or some kind of conflicting commitment in that two to four range on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. But other than that, you know. Keep on rocking it, stay up with the readings, Uh, stay up with the assignments and the quizzes and the reading quizzes, and without further ado, here is episode three of The Populist. and welcome to episode three. And this week marks our transition from um, talking about states and nationalism into political economy and development. And this week we're going to be talking about the Great Divergence. Um, And the way this is going to be kind of structured is first I'm going to talk about uh, what is the Great Divergence and why is it important. And Then I'm going to go into a couple explanations of why did we see the Great Divergence, um, because this is hotly contested and even bitter between some scholars that uh, have very different opinions on, on what happened, but we'll try and explore some of those. So let's get started. And the first question to kind of talk about is, what is the Great Divergence and why is it important? So the Great Divergence is simply when Western Europe and parts of North America became very wealthy and the rest of the world remained poor. Okay, this happened 1750 into the late 18th century, um, and you, you saw that m- throughout most of history, um, economic development was just not, um, not sustained. Okay, so you would have periods where people would, uh, they would come across some energy source or some, they would come into some good conditions or build an empire, even stuff like the Roman Empire or the Mayan Empire, places like that, um, and they would grow for a while, but then there would be decline, and there's kind of this pattern that we see going over and over again. But starting in about 1750 in Britain, and then. In the rest of Western Europe, in North America, we start to see economic growth happen to where those regions become significantly more uh, wealthy and grow at significantly faster rates than the rest of the world. Okay, And this, this is important because it seemed incredibly unlikely before it happened. All right. I mean, if we we think about it, I mean, after the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, Europe was a mess. They were poor. They were backward. Life expectancy was very low. There was very little trade, no exploration, very little science and discovery. Really, the churches were where that stuff happened. uh, Very primitive militaries. And then you you um, look at other places around the world, China, 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 China india um the moors who came into southern europe especially on the iberian peninsula uh, the ottoman empire they were vastly more developed um you know think of, of the stories about india and china's riches that explorers went to find i mean these were legends and i mean when christopher columbus landed in uh hispaniola hispaniola He wasn't looking for Hispaniola or North America. He was looking for a shortcut to to the Indies. Okay, so um, these... Other places around the world were significantly ahead of Europe and uh, what we refer to as the West. I mean, they were vastly superior milita- militarily. I mean, the the ships that China had, all you got to do is a Google search of, of ships in China at 1500, uh, were significantly bigger and more advanced than anything um, Christopher Columbus had when he came over uh, to the New World. And there are also stories of the Ottoman Empire. For those Game of Thrones fans out there, Europeans regularly bent the knee to the Ottomans for a long time. Uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, you know they they had a long line of sultans that were great leaders, but they dominated the Mediterranean and North African region for a long time. Okay. All of these places were richer compared to Europe. They were explorers, lots of scientific discovery. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff in the medieval times that scientific discovery and the, um, uh, the navigational tools that the Portuguese and Spanish used were actually taken from Muslim, uh, societies. Okay. So, you know, these places were, were heavily involved in trade. They were politically unified. Um, but even so, the, the greatness of these empires never produced self-sustaining economic growth. All right? It was always these periods of growth followed by decline up until about 1750 to 1800. You know, most of the world is, is really poor except for a tiny minority of the rulers. All right, going along with this, there was also very slow population growth. I mean, this is kind of crazy to think about, right? If, if you were to go back to 1850 or 1800 and take all of our technology and stuff and compare us to them, the people in 1800 or 1850 actually had more in common with somebody from biblical times than they do with us. Because life hadn't changed all that much, all right. So getting back to the slow population growth in around 1 AD, we we our best estimates say 230 million people is what were on the planet in a thousand years. So by 1000 AD, 270 million people, only 40 million person increase. Okay, between 1000 and 1800. It goes from 270 million to 900 million. I mean, it's crazy thing. We got over 7 billion people today. Okay, in the last 218 years, we have almost added 7 billion people to the planet. So a lot has changed. Um, also, for most of history, there's no real change in living standards, Um between 1000 and 1800 AD there was about a 50% increase in per capita income and per capita income just means if you were to take the income or the total total amount of money made total GDP which you will read about in your textbook this week um, if you were to take all of the GDP of a of a country and divide it by how many people live there that is your average that's your GDP per capita okay so it only increased by 50% in 800 years. All right. We saw disease and epidemics come in waves, wiping out large pop- large parts of the population. Many children died at an early age. I mean, the size of families was big because people could rely on a few of them not making it out of childhood. Okay. There was uh, also a lot of famine. You know, food production was not. Done with the precision that we have today, or that even started kind of towards the beginning of this uh, Industrial Revolution in the, the mid 18th century. Okay, and with this Industrial Revolution in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, something changed that allowed Europe to develop economically while the rest of the world does not. I mean, this started in Britain and it has changed everything. Okay, population grew. Health and nutrition improved. Our food yields grew and we could support a bigger population. Um, Advances in agriculture, better management of soils, discovery of uh, crop rotation, um, you know, harnessing new forms of energy. Energy is incredibly important. I mean, think about all of the stuff that we can put in a machine and have that do, And it takes care of it like a dishwasher. Okay, instead of having to sit there and wash dishes for even fifteen or twenty minutes after after dinner, you pop it in a dishwasher and press a button, and it takes care of it for you. I mean, and then when you're talking today, even in some some of the poorest parts of the world, say like uh, sub-Saharan Africa, people are walking miles a day to get water and carrying it back. You've seen the pictures of the women carrying the vases of water on their head. Okay, we turn a faucet on. That's a huge, that's a huge technological advance. And most of our technological advances today have been powered by energy. You you, you can't have all of this stuff without energy. So important. But it, it started, you know, in Britain, they had coal, and eventually steam engines, and then oil and natural gas and all of these different inventions that we've, we've come, up to, come up with since then. Okay, so, so these things changes and most of you were going to have, uh, you know, learned about this when you were in high school and, um, you know, so hopefully it's review. But with, with industrialization also came wealth and came military and political power. Okay, so then also, I mean, if you think back to our our, um, conversation about state formation a couple weeks ago and some of the diffusion theories, well, why did states become dominant? And one of them said that, well, like, Europe was dominant politically and militarily and they could spread it. Well, all of that is also tied in with this Industrial Revolution. Okay, so that's kind of some background just on on, on what – Is going on here. Um, But then, so how can we explain the Great Divergence? All right, because there's a lot of things going on. There's a ton of stuff happening, but in general, there's two big theories that people tend to have. All right, Um, the first one uh, that is kind of a a proponent of it was Andre Gunder Frank. Uh, and Jared Diamond would probably probably admit to this, but this is you'll read next week and and watch the video this week as Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, you know they would say the West was lucky. Okay, there was nothing really special. It just was the right circumstances. And then you have Landis, which you'll also read. An article this week about, and I'm going to take some of my my lecture notes. Are actually from a different chapter in a book that he wrote, um, but it, it's all talking about the same thing. Um, but they, he would say that the West was exceptional. There were certain things that um, separated the West from. Other parts of the world. Okay, but first let's start with the West was lucky, and Andre Gunder Frank, and kind of follow along um, with his his line of logic here. So, um, so he would say that the world up until 1800 was not Europe European centered, but was overwhelmingly Asian based. Okay, and as we talked about before, you had India and China and these great empires in. Asia, and they were kind of mythical to, to the, the Europeans because it you know, just spoke of riches that they couldn't imagine because, I mean, it was the Middle Ages, it was the Dark Ages. Um, you know, It's not, not uh, really a prosperous time at all for people in Europe. Um, so Frank would argue that Europeans basically bought themselves a seat on the Asian economic train. All right. And they did this because they, their explorers discovered what was basically an inexhaustible amount of money in the Americas, okay. gold and silver, literally mountains of silver in Mexico. Okay. And eventually, Spanish silver became the world's reserve currency, meaning countries all over the world would accept it as payment for things. Okay, so these European powers colonized and exploited the Native Americans and natural resources to make even more money. Okay, they also ran plantations, they did the slave trade. So, this is a story of exploitation and luck on the European part. Okay, they were basically using slave labor. And doing this, the Europeans could sell products that were made in the Americas to other places in the Americas, to Africa, to Europe. They weren't really competitive in Asian markets, though, because the quality and the price of them, quality wasn't good enough. The price was too high to compete with an already existing Asian market. Okay. Um, So the use of slave labor in the natural resources in the Americas provided profits that allowed Europe to access additional resources to fuel their consumption and it made the effects of scarce resources in Europe less severe. So if you run out of something in Europe but you have this entire new continent that you've come across and you know these people that you've exploited you can plant stuff there and ship it to Europe if there's a bad harvest year in some place there. Okay so it, it kind of made the effects of Of certain scarce resources less severe. People didn't feel it as much. Okay. So then to go a step further, Frank would argue that basically the Europeans used gold and silver from their, from the Americas to buy their way into the Asian market. Okay. Asia wouldn't buy uh, commodities from, or, or products from Europe, because they just weren't as good. You know, the economy was more advanced, the products were of better quality, um, but what the Europeans could do is they could buy Asian products with their silver and gold, okay? And so what they did was actually pretty ingenious. So, so they would keep track of prices of things in different places, Okay, Um, they would say you wanted to buy silk from India and silk from India was more expensive than, say, silk in Indonesia or China. And you could buy it in the place where it was the cheapest and then take it and sell it somewhere else where it was more expensive and you could make money. So you use gold or silver from the Americas. You buy something cheap or cheaper than it would be elsewhere. And then you take that and sell it at a place for more for a higher cost, and you make more money. And they did this with all kinds of things. I mean, they kept all the records. They knew who had the cheapest of which products, and they knew where they were more expensive. And they, they used these price differentials to just amass even more wealth. Okay, so... so you know, to sum up Frank's argument, he's basically saying, "Look, the America or the Europeans got lucky in the Americas, and they used this wealth in being able to exploit the population of the Americas and the natural resources, including gold and silver, um, to buy their way into an already flourishing um, Asian market." Okay, but so so you you have that that story, and then. Critics may or may not agree. I mean, I think it's very difficult to not acknowledge that, yes, the West found literally mountains of silver and all kinds of gold and, you know, they were able to use those things. But um, critics would also say this leaves a lot out. I mean... Landis would say the, the West has unique characteristics, and there were certain things going on there. Sachs would say that Britain and the West were just the first to figure out industrialization, but they had some things really going for them. Okay? Um, but, I mean, if you, if you think about the story that Frank tells, almost none of it is dealing with what's actually going on inside Europe. Okay, so that leads to to a few other questions that we need to ask. All right, the first one is: Was there something different or unique about Europe that the rest of the world didn't have that allowed them to industrialize first? Okay, so so I'll revert back to Jeff Sachs, and this is coming straight from the reading that you did this week. Um, he wouldn't say that Western Europe is unique and like they have some moral superiority or superior belief system or anything like that, he, he gives six reasons why Britain industrialized first. And now these are, are going to be um, relatively accepted in the literature. There's other points that people make that are more debated, but he's kind of summing up the development literature and the literature on the um, Great Divergence in stating these six things. Okay, so his first one is British society was relatively open, relatively open. Now, it's not open compared to what we have today, but relative to most places back in 1750, 1800, it was relatively open. The feudal order had started to weaken, and it wasn't a super rigid system like the caste system in India or other, other parts of the world where you are stuck in whatever class, or in India, what caste you were born into. Okay, there's no way out. All right, there was some social mobility in British society, so that kind of gives people an incentive to work their way up and to move forward. All right, the second reason he gives is that political institutions that protected political liberty were becoming stronger in Britain. All right, this didn't happen overnight. I mean, you go all the way back to the Magna Carta and this gradual process, especially of the nobles going to the king and saying, hey, we want more of a say in things. All right, so that eventually through time, you get the House of Lords and then the House of Commons in Britain. So you have Parliament, which was not something that many places had. Um, They also had a culture of free speech and open debate that allowed new ideas to be discussed and debated and didn't cut off these things um, just because it went uh, against whatever the king or queen said. Okay, And then also really important is private property rights. Okay, this individualized private property rights are really important because, um, as we'll talk about here in a little bit, when Landis criticizes what China did, um, that kind of led them to, to decline a bit at the same time that Europe was rising is there were no individualized, um, property rights. So if you came up with something, the state might just confiscate it, or there's no way for you to take that and actually make a living off of it. All right. Um, And so having these individual property rights, private property rights in the UK, gave people an incentive to invent things and to uh, be innovative and to create things that they could sell. Okay, so uh, the third reason that Sachs gives is that Britain was one of the centers of Europe's scientific revolution. Okay, so this time period, we're talking about um, a bunch of different discoveries going on, I mean, all through Europe. Okay, and Britain was one of these centers and you combine that with political openness and it kind of allows these the scientific thinking and scientific discovery and experimentation to thrive. Okay, and then you get Newtonian physics. And this really set the stage for scientific and technological discoveries. And this this had built on previous discoveries that had happened all over the continent. It wasn't like uh, Britain was the only place that this stuff was going on. But it was one of the things. Its political openness was, was unique when combined with uh, the scientific revolution and everything that was going on. Okay. Um, the next element that Sachs brings up is, is interesting because it's geography. In, in your videos this week, you'll, you'll listen to um, or you'll watch a video that talks about Jared Diamond's guns, germs, and steel argument, and geography is a big, big part of that argument. Um, but Jeff Sachs points out that uh, that Britain is an island nation. Okay, now this is really important, and I know that we're not, this isn't an international relations class, but think about it. Before you get uh, steam engines or coal powered engines, taking boats anywhere to try and invade is a nightmare process. You need to have tons of boats, you need to have tons of humans that are willing to go across an ocean and fight. Okay, so an island nation allows it to be relatively safe from invasion all right it's insulated from attack i mean think about japan it's a very similar situation there okay so it's an island nation it's close to continental europe so it can also trade and learn and still have contact with other states and other countries in continental europe okay inside Britain, there's navigable waterways that allowed boats and uh, goods to be transported. So it allowed internal trade. Okay, so remember, I mean, Britain wasn't unified the way it is now as the United Kingdom. I mean, Scotland had their own thing. I mean, Wales, England, um, today there's Northern Ireland, but um, all of these individual states, once rolled over themselves, and gradually they became unified. But this, these navigable waterways and being able to trade between them, you know, it, it allowed more commerce and more trade to happen than if, if they weren't there. Obviously, um, and then also something completely out of their control again. Good environment for agriculture. You know, they get lots of rain. They have good soil. They have a temperate climate, meaning it's not too hot and not too cold. Okay. Um, and Britain also were the pioneers of the new settlements in North North America could produce much more food and have that shipped back to Britain and feed people. Okay, so then you're kind of setting the stage for fighting a lot of um, diseases because of malnourishment. You're fighting a lot of, um, or you're, you're setting the stage for population growth when you can do that. They also figured out better agricultural techniques to produce more food um, with less people. And and this is, you know, part of the industrial revolution. I mean, if you've got technology where you don't have to have a person or an animal pulling a plow, that's huge. All right. Um, And, you know, those who were poor and were out of a job, Because of these advances, okay, so like technology comes along and destroys jobs. That's what happens as technology advances. And we're seeing it today, and we're seeing a lot of people really scared today because of that and not understanding what's going on or what their future is going to hold. Um, But these people back in 18th century Britain, they could leave and they could go to, to America. Okay, so they also had an outlet for these groups, Um, That might otherwise cause an awful lot of trouble if, you know, they're hungry and don't have a place to work and don't have any food and don't have any money. So that was another advantage that Britain had. Okay, I've already hit on that they're relatively safe from invasion. Um, And then lastly, Britain had coal. This is huge. Energy. You know, when you can have machines doing what people do, especially mundane tasks then it frees people up to do other things, like be creative and invent things. Um, and this was one of the the big things, because then they were able to discover or invent the, the steam engine. And it freed Britain from energy constraints that I talked about earlier, where a lot of these, um, even ancient civilizations or these great empires, would grow, 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 and then they would reach a certain point to where they basically ran on natural resources, and they crashed back down and then declined. Okay, but by having this available source of energy, you know you've got the ability to, um, you've got the ability to continue growing. You know, almost not infinitely because obviously there's not an infinite amount of energy, but there's enough to where we can have sustained growth. I mean, an interesting thing to do is Google uh, energy consumption and GDP growth and look at the one for the world, okay? And it's almost the same line, all right? And if you look at ones for like Western Europe and the United States, up until pretty recently, it's almost a straight line. And advances. We've made... um, have allowed us to produce more with less energy, which is a good thing um, but but that's that's a really, really important important point to make is that energy consumption, because every time a new business opens or a new thing is is invented that requires energy, you need more and more energy and Britain had coal, and it allowed them and they didn't just have it because having it isn't just enough they exploited it and used it to make machines and to mechanize things. Okay, so that's that's the last of the the six of, of Jeff Sachs. And so just to, to run through those real quick again, you had a relatively open society in Britain. You had political institutions that uh, protected political liberty. They were stronger in Britain than other places. They were one of the centers of the scientific revolution in Europe. Their geography was important. Um, they were relatively safe from invasion and they had coal for energy. Okay. Um, so then Landis would probably not argue with Sachs on, on those things, but he would say that, that, that there's some other stuff going on that that Sachs and especially somebody like Frank or other people who would who would agree with Frank would would really disagree with. And and Landis's argument is that we have to look at much more of the long-term historical trends. Okay, so Frank and people that would agree with Frank are really talking about stuff that happened you know fifteen sixteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds. but Landis is saying we have to go we have to go way back, okay? Um, and he's saying we have to look at these long historical trends, and he's saying that Europe is exceptional due to particular circumstances. Okay, first of all, being religion, especially Protestant Christianity. Um, And the reason that Protestant Christianity is important is because included in kind of that worldview is property rights. Okay, he actually traces them all the way back to biblical times. Okay, like Old Testament, B.C. era uh, times where, where he says property rights were invented and that was the tradition that carried them on. Okay, the next big thing that Landis argues is that Europe had fragmented rule. It wasn't dominated by one power. Okay, so in China, you had the Warring States period, where, and this happened much, much earlier, where you had different states obviously warring with each other before the Chinese Empire could be established. All right, but you go to Europe in medieval times and It's not dominated by one power, okay? There's territorial partition. So you've got all these different little states and little, not necessarily little, but, you know, little kingdoms and tribes and things that are the ones that that are in power. Okay, so the land is divided up. And what this means is you're going to see competition, okay, competition between countries competition between tribes and kings and this go kind of goes back to the bellicist theory of state formation and how it not only helped the state form but also helped economies form and helped these places in europe be inventive and innovative and um you know, moving forward, trying to, to always come up with new things to help life be more efficient, whether it's to protect yourself or to, um, have things to sell in the the world market. Okay. So, and then there was this, this other thing where what he, he labels communes, which are semi-autonomous cities. And these cities were really centers of enterprise and centers of commerce. Okay, and they kind of ran themselves. Um, Next is the gradual ceding of power and rights from lords and rulers. Probably the most famous uh, example of this is Britain. It didn't happen where the people in Britain just had these rights, it happened over a long period of time, as I discussed before. Okay, another thing that Landis talks about is the split between secular and religious. Okay, the Catholic Church was much more prominent in some places, especially southern Europe. Portugal, Spain, uh, Italy, France. These places, the Catholic Church had a real stronghold. But other places in more uh, northern Europe, they, the Catholic Church wasn't as prominent, so it really allowed the potential for these areas to, to have much more free thought. Okay, where different ideas can, can be talked about and discussed and, and you're not subject to the Catholic Church basically banishing you or limiting what you're allowed to talk about, discuss, and think. Okay, now the fragmented rule also helps because it made Europe safer from a single invasion. All right, so you can imagine if, if Europe was one unified political entity and it got invaded from someone and they won, well, the entire continent would be done. But if you come from the east and you defeat one tribe, well, you've, you've defeated that tribe, fine, but now you've got to defeat this kingdom Okay, you defeated them. Fine, you got it. And it it kind of provided insulation, especially for those um, for those countries that were on the western side of Europe. Okay, because as I talked about earlier, you know, trying to invade a place by sea is very difficult, especially before modern technology and you know, the, the huge destroyers and things that we have now. And even now it's not particularly easy. Um, So those on the Eastern side of Europe kind of took the brunt of this and that provided some protection for those on the West. Okay. And another big thing that Landis talks about is that the West became more innovative because of its, unique intellectual heritage. And what this is this is talking about is that Europe came out of what was left of Greece and Rome. All right. So they inherited these traditions of democracy, limited governments and markets. Okay. So this led people to think about things differently because those are unique Uh, unique ideas to to this part of the world. Um, And as soon as Europe survived the dark ages where it was under constant attack from within and without, um, it started to innovate things like the wheelbarrow, crop rotation. Um, It started to make organizational innovations and adaptations, especially with business. Okay. One of the things that that uh, he would talk about is that merchants started using lower paid labor and moving from hiring people in cities to hiring rural people because they were cheaper. Okay. Um, they also used child labor and, um, women because they could justify paying them more back then or paying, not paying them more, paying them less. Sorry. Um, and this, While, you know, exploitative labor practices are are never endorsed, it did make their products more competitive and it allowed them to make more money and to trade, to trade more. Um, And, you know, all of this stuff kind of led to a medieval economic revolution that included new ways to produce food. I mean, I talked about uh, the crop rotation and things, but there's also stuff with plows that were revolutionary in the time. Um, You know, and, and this all led to more trade. And with more trade, you kind of get into a more meritocratic society because in order to move your way up, you kind of have to prove yourself. Okay, so this is, so Landis, his main argument is talking about how the West was exceptional due to specific circumstances that they had. Okay. And this article I will post on canvas for those of you that want to take a look at it. It's not actually an article. It's a chapter from a book he wrote and it's about 16 pages long. And he kind of goes into all this stuff in a little bit more detail. You don't have to read it. Um, but I'll make it available for those of you that are interested. Okay. So, so we've talked about the frank's point of view that basically the west was lucky and they bought themselves into a, an economic system in asia that it was booming and and doing really good and and that kind of incorporates the international aspect of, of this great divergence and then um, we talked about Sachs and he kind of explained why at a certain point in time, Britain took off before other places. And then Landis, okay, well, what was it about the West that allowed them to take off and the rest of the world not to? But this leaves one last question to really get into. And why it's so, this whole debate about the Great Divergence is so interesting is that it couldn't have been predicted. If you were looking at things in 1500 and said, oh, yeah, by the year. 1900 the world is basically going to flip as far as who's more advanced than the others okay but the question we haven't answered or even talked about is so if china was so far ahead of europe not just china but other parts india um the ottoman empire um places like this but if but if I'm going to focus on China. If China was so far ahead of Europe before the Great Divergence, why did they not continue innovating and Europe start innovating and continue innovating? Okay, so what's going on inside of China that basically they didn't continue innovating and didn't take their advantage and continue moving with it? Okay, and Landis talks about this in the article that you read for this week okay? Um, And as he states, they all had elements, historians note for the Industrial Revolution in Northwest Europe. They were all there in China, okay? So why did science and technology stall out? And Landis, his main point is basically that before Europeans arrived, no one was even really trying, okay? But if they're not trying then why aren't why weren't they trying and landis explains this as the lack of a free market and individualized property rights as one explanation okay so before the so he breaks it down into kind of two time periods you have before the europeans arrive what was going on and then after the europeans arrive so when he talks about this he's saying that before the europeans arrive look you really didn't have a free market china had established themselves as the dominant power in East Asia, or in Asia in general. And they had an empire that everybody else was subservient to. Okay? Um, And these other places knew that, and they basically paid tribute by giving things to the Chinese empire and staying in their good graces. Um, But Landis points out that this may have actually been something that was detrimental to the Chinese in the long term because the lack of a free market and lack of individualized property rights didn't create incentives for for people to invent things. It didn't create incentives for them to experiment and to keep going. Okay, And then he also points out that the Chinese state was heavily involved in all of this. And a lot of times it was well, what is this going to do to uh, the the power structure? Or what's this going to do to, um, you know, the continuity of the empire? All right, so, so a lot of times if something was new or something could potentially turn the tables on who was in power and disrupt a peaceful society, the Chinese state would step in and... It would it would not take off or it couldn't develop the way that it was able to in the West. Okay, Landis also argues that it's values in society. OK, he brings up the absence of freedom. All right. So he actually describes the Chinese empire as a totalitarian regime. They wanted to control everything within their within their borders um and he he also argues that going along with this values of society that more importance was given to custom and consensus instead of innovation and novelty so let's make sure we're all on the same page let's make sure that um you know we're following traditional wisdom okay that we're following traditional ways of of thinking instead of moving fast and breaking things to I think that was Steve Jobs or somebody at Google, um, which is kind of more of the mentality in Western Europe. Okay, so before the Europeans arrived, he points out these two things, the lack of a free market and individualized property rights, and the values of society as being things that held China back. Okay, so then Landis goes further and he says, okay, so even after the Europeans arrived, Um, then what happened? They kind of had a second chance here. Um, and after the Europeans arrived, he argues that the Chinese refused to learn from them and adapt. And obviously this didn't apply to everybody, but it applied to enough and to, to enough people with power that, um, learning from the scientific innovations of the West were kind of dismissed. Um, and that they, they were never, they never really took a whole, a foothold in China. All right. And he argues that this has to do with culture and mindset. All right. Because if you go back to the mindset of the Chinese and he documents this in the, the article, um, the belief was China was the center of the universe. Their emperor was a son of heaven. And if China was the apex of world civilizations, what could they possibly learn from the Europeans? You know, technology could be seen as an attack on Chinese superiority. All right, he goes into clocks and how these Jesuit priests would come and they would have these clocks and they would... um, you know, they would show them and the people in China love them, but they were seen more as a toy than something that could be used to increase productivity and change the way that, that things worked. And then he also talks about weapons and how cannons and things like that, I mean, because the Chinese were significantly ahead prior to, to this great divergence. I mean, they invented gunpowder way before the Europeans came in contact with it, but nothing like engineering the next level of guns and cannons never happened and even when the europeans tried to show them this technology it was it was rejected okay and another uh way of reacting to this new technology was that it was it was nothing new um i i think that uh one of these these priests comes to to China and has mathematics and and different things and they go back to well in the song dynasty we we already had these things so kind of this dismissive attitude is is what landis landis played played into and i mean if if you go back to what he says about the culture and mindset i mean if you're the center of the universe you're the best there is there's nobody better than you you know this doesn't sound familiar at all does it americans you know no nobody's better we got nothing to learn from anybody else um, you can see how you would dismiss certain things i mean because if if you had to say wow they do things better than we do or they know more than us well then this whole mythology of this is of of having the best civilization ever kind of falls apart. All right. And when you're a, you're a civilization based on consensus and based on continuity and not rapid change, then this is a major threat to society staying together. Okay. So those are the things that um, Landis argues as far as why China didn't didn't move forward and reasons inside of China for what was going on okay so let's let's rewind a little bit I know this has covered an awful lot of material and let's just go back through kind of to recap what we've talked about here so we talked about what the great divergence is and why it's important. We also went into a little bit of a little bit of history to explain that and to show that Well, it's really because it's so surprising is why it's interesting and why it's important. But it's also important because we see this huge disparity in wealth emerge over a couple hundred years that we have not seen in, in the past before. Um, you know and then we went into explaining this and we we looked at andre gunder frank's argument that basically the west was lucky and then we looked at okay so if if that's what's going on uh, what was, If that's what's going on around the world, what, what's going on inside Europe? And so we first went through Jeff Sachs's reasons why Britain was the first place to industrialize, because that was kind of the kickstarter for all of this. And then we talked about Landis' explanation for what was going on within Europe and why those circumstances allowed Europe to develop while other places didn't, and then finally we talked a little bit about the article that you're reading for this week. That's required for the class. That uh, Landis talks about. Well, why didn't China? Um, why didn't why why didn't China become the first place to have this industrial revolution and to really maintain this sustained growth over time? And so he went through and, and broke that down. And obviously you're going to need to read the articles for the week, the Sachs chapter, Frank and, uh, Landis. And as I said before, I will post the other Landis chapter from his book because it might, some of you might be interested in that. It's pretty easy read. Um, but you know, outside of that, Please, uh, you know, make sure that if you have questions, post them on the discussion below this, um, iTunes tends to be delayed about 24 hours. So this will be going up Sunday night. And if, if it's not available on iTunes early Monday, don't freak out. It's going to be available, um, You know, but get a head start. Take a look at the discussion question because I think it definitely talks about Landis and Frank, and you know which one is more convincing. And then make sure you're stopping into office hours. Uh, Make sure you're participating in the discussion forums, asking questions about the podcast if you have questions or something wasn't clear. And then also providing answers if somebody has posted a question underneath it underneath the uh, podcast on. Um, canvas there's a discussion there so you know if if you have questions post and if you think you know the answer you know feel free to respond to your fellow classmates Um, next week there will be more feedback on my general observations with the unit one writing assignment and discussion forums but until then uh, make sure you're keeping up with the readings and keeping up with the assignments and keep rocking it so have a good one